0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Play Art Repertory podcast. I'm Mitchell Huntley, here again with my co-host, Sarah Lena Sparks. I'm here because
1: I want to be here, not because I'm being held against my will.
0: See, we have a through line now, and we've reached the logical conclusion. And today we're going to be talking about activist theater. And here to talk about it with us, we have two special guests. We have Madeline Oberly.
2: Hi, guys.
0: And Nick Ruano.
2: Hi. (laughs)
0: Yeah, so two of you have been on the podcast before, but um, you've been as actors, and um, actors are a great role, but also both of you have an interest in activist theater, so we're going to talk to you about that today, and we're going to talk with them about that. I realize I'm addressing the audience. You guys obviously know this already, and um, wow, this is breaking down really quickly, but yeah, so first we're going to start off with, Sarah, you want to take it away with our game?
1: Of course. Um, Like we do with any of our special guests that we have, uh, we like to play a game called Magnet to Your Computer. Today, we have two people, meaning that it is Magnet to Your Computers. Two computers.
0: Magnet to Your Two Computers. The Squeakquel. The So, So that is... (laughs) That is what we're going to be playing today. Uh,
1: If you're unaware of how this game works, uh, it's called Magnet to Your Computer because as a writer, your computer is probably one of your most valuable objects, and the memory is even more valuable than the computer itself. But if you put a magnet to your computer, it will ripe your memory. Um, So this is your gut reactions, your instinct answer to these questions that I'm about to ask you. Um, Feel free to just blurt it out since we do have two people. Um, and you don't have to do that nice thing that I talked about in our episode last week of like, you go, you go, no, you go. Oh my God. You go. Just somebody be the bitch and go. Um, <laughs> that's why I'm on this episode. Yeah, <laughs> Got <exactly>. it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So Madeline and Nick, are you two ready for Mad Nate? Yes. yes.
0: First one of season two.
1: First one of the year. First one of the year. First one of the
0: year. Uh, 2021. All
1: right. Lift off and the clock has started. Madeline and Nick, what is your favorite piece of theater?
3: Who's afraid of Virginia Woolf?
1: Les If you could live in someone's shoes for one day, dead or alive, like while they were alive, not like in the ground being dead, who would it be? Anton Oh My God, Nick. Ruth Bader Ginsburg. If you could uh... take one fictional character (laughs) out of existence, who would it be?
2: Doctor Who. Tony from West that Story. Also, can we refer- <laughs> These are really doctor interesting.
0: Who? These are interesting picks.
3: <laughs> I don't know. That was just the first thing that came to mind. Which but which boy,
0: the entire character or specific doctor are we talking about here?
3: Oh, um, just like what they did recently, because they like completely just ruined everything and they were like, anything goes now. They were like, the doctor is everyone, and everyone is the doctor, and I was like
1: what okay cool so,
3: so you're saying
0: you getting rid of everybody then you're yeah. getting rid of everyone well, we're just cool. we need to start over <laughs> matt
1: smith as the doctor got me through some stuff as a 12 year old so <laughs> stop <laughs>
3: that brings back some dark memories um, all right
1: Super question four <laughs> favorite brand of bottled water fiji evian yeah you guys are bougie okay <laughs> Um, <laughs> I was gonna say, I was gonna
0: Dasani, say, water. Dasani, I was gonna say, yeah.
1: I'm like, tap least, is kind airhead. of the airhead. answer. At least nobody said water. box water, box water is better. Box water is better. <laughs> um, all right, question number five What would your vanity license plate be?
2: Like, Mr. Trauma Coin. I would never be caught dead with a vanity license okay. plate. I love it when people's vanity license
1: plates are just their name because it's like are you gonna forget like you good baby you know what I mean <laughs> like,
2: is this my, my grandpa's was grandma O for like eight
1: years but that's like it's not like it's not like they're like Lisa Turner it's like grandma you know <laughs> like
3: uh, well my neighbor has one that says lamb fam cause her like like that's what cause it was her last name so I guess I don't know
0: I do, I do. I would personally do Sondheim slut with no vowels. Sondheim that would be slut? My <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> with no vowels. S N D H M S L.
1: That's exactly who you are. You're a (laughs) sometimes slut. My... And
0: no one would know what it is. They think it's an (laughs) actual license plate. I have a
1: great aunt who's kind of crazy, but she always wants to have a vanity license plate. And she would make And you know, uh, like English is her second language. Whenever she has any legal paperwork, she has my dad fill it out. So when she was having my dad fill it out, he was like, what do you want it to be? And she said, special K, because that's what she ate for breakfast that morning. And I'm like, really? And for so many reasons, that's funny, but... Uh, I digress. Okay. Question number six. Pick a Disney princess side character. Like, who are you as a Disney princess side character? Rapunzel the, the That's what I guy. was going to say.
2: That was me. I had this. I was yes. Say, I think
1: his name is Pascal. Nick, yes. I was like, you give such Pascal energy. You really do. There we go. Okay. <laughs> I'm self aware. Okay. Question number seven. If you could choose one color for your LED light strips, what would it be?
3: Is it, bad, is it bad if I say red no, it's not
1: bad if you say red it just means you're on the dark side which you 100% yeah. are by the way there mm-hmm. we go Red. <laughs> thank you all right question number eight favorite diva Meryl Streep okay Whitney Houston, Houston. Mm-hmm. honestly that's probably my favorite too okay question okay. number
2: nine There's- early bird or night owl
3: night owl
2: I want to be an early bird and I can't be a night owl. So we're just like neither. And we strive for one. I so want to be I would an like early to mention f- that
0: you have a night owl moments. We there are night is owl moments. <laughs> <Let's> just <laughs> hanging out playing a piano for until 3 a.m. But that's
2: that's that is correct. I feel
1: that I want to be an early bird so bad. I want to be somebody who like gets up in the morning and reads books and drinks like drinks tea and like has like opens the window. <laughs> but I just stay in bed till the PMs instead if I have my like choice over it. You know.
2: It's I have acting at nine a.m. this year and next year, so it's kind of been thrust upon Girl, me. Girl, we have tai chi
1: oh. at eight in the morning. <gasps> Don't, even talk. Don't even talk <laughs> on Zoom. On Zoom, we're out here parting the horse's mane on Zoom at eight in the morning. <laughs> it's a different kind of energy when I go into that class. <laughs> Okay.
3: But you know what? I leave that class feeling so refreshed
1: and ready to start the day. I do, day. and then we'll watch a video in the next class and he just falls asleep anyway. Okay. Um, and then question number 10: the question of the Playwright Repertory Podcast: Hercules or Bambi's dad?
0: You switched it up. Hercules.
1: Like neither. I wasn't.
2: You can't say neither. Choose one. <sighs> I think Bambi's we dad, s- just because her- Hercules at some points, it's just like that male energy yes. is just like too yes. much. This
0: is why we're friends. Yes. This
1: is why we're friends. Uh, Mitchell asked this
2: <laughs> Bambi's dad is a Dilf.
1: Like <laughs> he I is a cartoon animal. <laughs> this
3: is an animal.
0: I didn't express it that way, but yeah, that was the sentiment. Nick, have you
3: I seen a picture this podcast
0: of podcast for furries? No,
3: no, we're seen... not
1: furries. Nick,
0: we're not have furries.
3: Have you seen a picture
1: of Bambi's? At and I just need you to like think about the energy. I saw it. I saw it
3: on the on the the um. What's it called? Has, like an outline. The, the, outline. The, talk. Yes. the outline. And I don't understand this question, but I will wholeheartedly stand with Hercules. For me,
1: I think Hercules is. full of Himself, so I can't stand that. You know, I just the idea that he killed his entire
3: family and then everybody was like, "It's fine." Oh, like, like the
1: actual myth of Hercules?
3: Yeah, like just to get away with it. You know, bad bitch energy. Oh, yeah.
0: yeah, And I, yeah. <laughs> I also personally had to like give honorable mention to, uh, to the SNL sketch where, uh, Dwayne the Rock Johnson plays Bambi as like, <laughs> it's like I the, the Bambi now. seeks revenge. Yeah. That's a good. That, that's Bambi a good honorable revenge, mention. In my that's book.
2: what it was. All right. How could you remember the name of that sketch? Like that's your the knowledge, of that sketch. I know that's not, it's, it's
0: definitely named like Bambi or something like you that. Know, to be
3: fair, until you said Bambi seeks revenge, I had no idea what you were talking Same. about, and then you said it, and I was like, "Oh, I remember." Same. It's like it's like you yeah.
1: pinned it down pretty well. Okay, so <laughs> activist theater, what a turn! Uh, <laughs> what a thank turn you for playing magnet to your computer. Now let's get down and and talk about. Activist theater.
0: <laughs> I'd say down and dirty, but after the conversation that with that. Bambi's dad being a DILF, that was just not the right lane. I feel like
1: that's a perfect segue.
3: <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of Dilfs.
1: <laughs> Speaking of Dilfs.
0: Activist, about about activist, activist theater. theater. There we
1: go. Mitchell.
0: Alright, yeah. So um first things first, how would you define activist theater?
1: We'll ask. Uh, Nick first because Madeline just gave. God
3: driving. damn it
0: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
1: um,
3: I think activist theater can take like a bunch of different forms but if I were to like pinpoint it to like a definition or something that I would describe it as I would just say like using performance and discussing issues or topics that are like extremely important or like aren't talked about or like trying to oh no I have a better idea C- cut all that out okay so activist theater <laughs> Activist theater is theater where you want to enact change. There you go. There I don't is. know. That was
0: there
2: it. it <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like that is a great um, little summary. Kind of continuing off your pre-cut that out points. Um I think a big thing whenever I think about activist theater is about like representation and accessibility. And I think activist theater often works on the intersection between the two, whether that be like cheaper tickets or free theater and like public performance art and, or the inclusion of by POC actors and especially production teams. Cause that is something that really needs to change in our view of activist theater. Um, and also just the people that are represented on stage, which can include like deaf West. Great. I rep- Example of activist theater because it is made by and for the deaf community.
0: And that actually that's a that's a good point. I'm about to say, what are some examples of like sort of activist theater and including using your definitions? um, What are some examples that are out there in like the broader like theater community, American theater community or otherwise? Because other than like like Deaf West is a good example. Yeah, like
3: no, that saying. was like my example. I was like, oh yes, <laughs> I know how to answer <laughs> this question. And then you said it and I was like, and next question.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I fully looked this up to make sure that I wasn't like fucking up any names because I do that like constantly. I think I called the Manhattan Theater Club the Manhattan Theater Center for like seven months straight at one point. And I just don't want that to exist like online <laughs> forever. I admitted that, so at least I'm self-aware. Um Within Manhattan Theater Club, over the summer they do a thing called Stargate Theater, where they have um, young men that have been either tagged for the juvie system or through the juvie or prison system that devise and create their own show that go that goes up on off Broadway to have people in the aim of pe- like clearly these really wealthy white new yorkers that go see van han theater club shows see them in different light um please let me internship for you you canceled this summer but i want it really badly <laughs> a plug um some other really great ones uh plan b in utah which just the fact that a theater organization called itself plan b in utah is a flex itself uh but they are great emerge nyc is really really cool performance art um, to look into that one, and those are kind of all the ones that I can think of off the top of my head. And then, like literally any company that says that it's based in a Bowl, wall, like you will be most of the times pretty good. And
3: then I think too here in LA, like somebody that uh, Sarah and I met was, um, oh, what was his name? louise B- what was it, Sarah? Uh, yes,
1: what was the theater center. The lot. It's like the Lion
3: Theater, yeah, yeah. And he, we met him, and he was like the, the he was the one who started it and everything. And that one's really big too, just because it's a very big like uh, Latina based theater company. Um, I'm trying to think of other ones in LA because there's a lot of theater companies LA in LA Mm -hmm. specifically that are like very BIPOC focused. And I know that specifically at UCLA, like we have, um, color box theater, which is very like BIPOC focused as well. And then just, uh, we have a lot of like out of the blue is doing a lot of stuff. That's like trying to be more kind of like the the work that they are doing is kind of like, I would say somewhat activist theater as well. Um, I don't know. UCLA has a lot of stuff though. And we're very cool. (laughs) (laughs)
2: <laughs> oh my God. before just for like Chicago I'm like I literally didn't mention a single thing from where I'm from um Albany Park Theater Project is Latinx TYA activist theater and they've partnered with the Goodman a couple times and they are super sick and you can also see like full filmed version of their shows on Vimeo I watched Feast earlier this year and it was spectacular
0: yeah and another another one in I know in LA that mm-hmm. reminded me of was a uh, Breath of Fire is a Another company that's um, it's Latinx um, uh, theater, and it's pretty it's pretty activist. I know it's by uh, run by people like Sarah Guerrero, which n- no one's really gonna know the name here, but it's run by a lot of like really arts activist people in the Latinx community in like um, LA and uh, Orange County here. But yeah, and I think when you're saying um, Madeline to the whole accessibility and bring people who are like lower income. I know lots of theaters do like sort of like community nights, lots. Of, places are starting to do that or, or try to like lower tickets to help bring in people who are potentially lower uh, income, lower ticket prices. Like I know like the local, uh, like our, our, um, regional theater here and, uh, Sarah and myself, uh, they'd have like, I think it's $10 tickets. I think it is, is it $10 tickets? I yeah. forget. It's been so it long is, since you get for like 15 to 25 yeah. year olds, like it's super easy to do. And like that helps bring in people who are not normally, um, be able to, or be interested in going to the theater. I think opening it up, and opening up the messages like the shows that they produce, which is something that's really
1: well. That being said, really yeah, accessible. like with the whole community nights thing, I think sometimes theaters get it right and sometimes theaters do not. Because yeah. like the theater that Mitchell's talking about, South Coast Repertory has a fantastic program where you can choose any performance. Um, sometimes their most popular shows. Uh, it's not every single performance, but it's most of them. Um, you can choose any performance, get two ten dollars tickets, so you can bring somebody as well um but because the thing about like community nights is sometimes it's like okay let's all group you guys together and make sure you know that like who you are and who the audience is it's like oh here's our charity night you know um yeah, it's,
3: it's like, yeah,
0: it's doing like this when one for the, the poor people. People. yeah exactly yeah, it's, it's like it's like when they have like school productions of like shows like <laughs> they send schools it's like obviously they're like they're gonna like kind of like tone it down a bit and stuff like that but in the same way though there's also um something that i i remembered from uh from what we've learned at at least northwestern there's um this uh sensory um uh, sensory oh, friendly sensory friendly theater is something that's uh important i think that's something we don't talk about that like how that um madeline do you, you want to talk more about that um potentially
2: sure um sensory friendly theater is especially prominent in theater for young audiences we are making a push to make it in everything i've working on that for a while this year um and It's basically where you change, you tailor the show for probably one or like up to four nights a run so that especially children it's mostly focused on the autism spectrum can watch the show with like less external pressure so pulling up the lights in the house of the theater so that the light difference isn't as stark uh, trigger warnings where they have people on the side with like little airplane calling lights so that you have a heads up whenever there will be displays of violence or things like gunshots um, areas outside the theater so where parents can take their kids and it's a specifically designate a place where there's not that sense of shame that like oh your child is disrupting the show and also the actors are aware that the audience is going to act differently than if it's a lot of like 50 year old white men and women um Mm -hmm. and it's a wonderful thing it's on broadway too a lot of the disney shows do it but definitely not as frequently as they should and then back to what you guys were talking about with community nights. Uh, the sliding scale option is also really good, where you can kind of choose your own price for mm-hmm. tickets. But also make sure not to abuse that, because just because you can pay five dollars for a ticket doesn't mean that if you can pay thirty, you should. Yeah. And I had not, I've
1: never actually heard of the what was what do you call it sensory sensory friendly performances. Sensory-friendly yeah, performances. I know this is the first I've been hearing of it too. Um, but like for me, you know, like I have people I know that are on the spectrum who, you know, like going to shows doing, even just watching movies at home is something that they have to kind of regulate before, um, that the parents have to watch and like forward different like scenes before that, you know, and that's in their own homes. And the theater is an experience that is, At the moment, so tailored to one kind of person and one kind of body and one kind of color, you know, and one kind of socioeconomic background that it's like we have to think about every single thing when we're making theater and every kind of person. Um, I had never even heard of any theaters doing like sensory friendly nights. So I think that's so interesting and also like so needed because, you know, like the future is kids and, you know. Uh, The future is, you know, the younger people who are going to be watching theater. And, you know, we have now that we have so much knowledge, there are tons of kids who are on the spectrum who are being who aren't able to watch these performances because of exactly that, because it can be too much because it's sensory overload Um, and excluding them from performances is such a disservice, especially because. You know, there are so many kids on the spectrum that would thrive in a theater community um, and to X them out of that um, is a terrible disservice to the future of the art form, I think.
2: Yeah, totally. There's um, so clearly, like, I think, especially in America, you see sensory friendly performances most often in like, oh, we'll do this one night in our three week one run. But in Europe, there's definitely a bit of a different standard. There's a wonderful, wonderful um, sensory-friendly performance company in London called Oily Cart. And clearly it's focused on the spectrum, but it's also focused for people with physical and mental disability. So they've done shows in pools where it's completely immersive and they're walking around with the actors. They've done a show where it was kind of this sense of like flight and very fantasy-esque and they had wheelchair hookups and the actors were like on hanging things around and it's crazy immersive theater. And in terms of Like technology and how you look at what theater can be, they're one of the most innovative countries or companies in the theater business, in my opinion. But because it's made not for the whole population and its intention, and because it's made for kids, no one really talks about it. Absolutely, and that's
0: viewed as more like a niche thing as opposed to being something that should be more like broadly like brought to like the general, like um the general like, viewing public for, like, the theater. It needs to be more, like, it needs to be more normalized and more widespread, I think, a lot more.
1: Totally. I mean, right now, theater is, it's the mainstream theater and even some of the off-mainstream theater. Like, just, like, most theater is for rich white people, you know? Um, Which is interesting, because, like, Nick and I, in one of our classes yesterday, were talking about how specifically American theater has come about Because of marginalized communities, because they couldn't find jobs in other realms. So they learned how to create theater and how to do this type of storytelling. And then, you know, it got gentrified and taken away from them. And now it's this like white kind of haven, you know, Um, which is... And then also... Yeah, Nick. Oh, sorry.
3: But also just talking about, like, American theater in general and just stuff that, like, Sarah Sarah and I have talked about in class. uh, We talk about how, like, spectacle is such a huge thing right now and it's, like, so commercialized and, like, this idea of, like, the mega musical is so huge. And I think it's such an interesting conversation to have that if we pull back on that spectacle, we really can make theater more accessible and more like open to everybody. Because like one of the things with like sensory overload is like you have all those like lights and the costumes and the everything. And while that might be like amazing to like some people, that's like, that really does a lot. And like, we really need to like start pulling back from that. And then like, I feel like just being able to like mix like all these different ideas of like, oh, you know, we want to make theater better. And one of the ways that we want to do that is by pulling back on spectacle. But by pulling back on spectacle, we're also making theater more accessible. And I think that's really like an interesting conversation to have.
1: Yeah, I mean, I I saw Moulin Rouge on Broadway and I just couldn't help but laugh because at one point it was just ridiculous. And I mean, like there was so much merit in the design and the di- designers like, yes, it looked amazing, um, but it was just so much. And I know it's Baz Luhrmann and that's kind of his thing, but it's just like this is the theater that we're giving credit to when it's not saying that much, like it was trying to say a lot and I get it. I get where it was going. They had, I'd say about half the cast was black, which is pretty good, you know, considering, but it's just like, I don't know, it, it left a bad taste in my mouth and it's like, what are we trying to say here, you know? Because also, it's like um, we talk about, like, the tokenization, just
3: of BIPOC people in the theater and everything and it's like, sometimes, like, they're just doing things, like, like, just because the person is, like, a certain race or just because the person is of, like, a certain sexuality or just because, and it's like, like, I just hate that, like, we're, we're doing something just mm-hmm. because, and it's like, oh, oh, we're not racist. Look, we did this show with a black lead and it's like, well, you did that one show and then, like, every Every other show in your season had a white yeah. lead. so it's like, okay, that's and an interesting choice. And they make
1: Karen Olivo like her big song was firework by Katy Perry. And I will never forgive them for that because she has an amazing <laughs> voice. And I was waiting the entire time to like hear her and hear her amazingness. And I was like, I'm here in person. I'm like listening to this. And then she's like singing a firework. And I just couldn't, I couldn't forgive them for that. She deserves so much just... better, which kind of is also the, lends the hand of to like, okay, when we're writing musicals, when we're writing plays, Who's writing the musical? Who's writing the play? Who's directing it? Who's who's the creative team? Um, I mean, like this show is about writers. Um, You know, we're the playwright repertory podcast. And, you know, the thing is, like, we need to be telling the right stories. We need to be giving the light to the right stories and we need the right people to be telling the correct stories, you know, um and that doesn't mean that every story by somebody in the BIPOC community needs to be about being a person of color but it their stories just need to be told in general you know they need to see somebody who looks you know like a kid needs to see somebody who looks like them on stage regardless and a kid also needs to see somebody who doesn't look like them on stage um to accept the fact that like you know, a white kid needs to understand that black people can be the protagonist just as much as black people need to understand that they are also the protagonist, you know? Um, no,
3: I completely agree with that. And then it's
1: just that, like, it's like, Sarah, we
3: talked about this like on my podcast too, but just like the whole idea of just like redefining the narrative is just so important. And something that like, I talk to Kennedy about all the time is that like, I would love to see like like a black sci-fi show, like a father son duo and just like something, you know, like, I don't know, I'm not black. So like, I wouldn't direct that. and I wouldn't write that. But like, I would love to see like a black creative team be able to create that because it's like, that's something we don't see is just like, like, um, uh, just like BIPOC people in science fiction. And it's like, it's like, an interesting like avenue to go down but i totally agree with sarah's point about how not every story needs to be like a struggle story and it's like not everything has to be about like why my life is hard as a gay mexican it's like why can't i just like talk about my life like i just like there's the ups there's the downs there's like the inside outs and it's just like there's so much more to it than just my struggle
1: and I think that's one of the first steps to creating activist theater is just like being like, who's actually telling the story here? What's the story? Um, you know, even though like so we're here to talk about activist theater and like activism activism is really about starting some kind of catalyst to make action happen. Um, and that storytelling is one of the most powerful tools we have to get people to do that. Um, I think it's almost the root of so many things, you know, uh, you could, you could listen to somebody speak, sure, but like seeing somebody and feeling somebody feel those feelings. I mean, theater is really one of the studies of humanity and the studies of empathy and to see a story, it, it does, it It affects you in a different way, you know? Um, and I think that also has to kind of do with the audiences that we're giving for activists to theater. You know, you could make, a play on Broadway for activist theater, and then it only gets to rich right people who don't care about it, you know? Um, I think another part of activist theater is making theater for that audience, you know? Um, earlier this year, me and Nick were able to talk to Hanai Gigaman. and he is basically one of the founders of Native American theater in America. And he was saying... You know, I asked him because I write plays um, specifically about the Filipino-American mixed experience and about Filipino culture. And I was asking him, you know, I get mixed reviews sometimes of white people not understanding my show. Um, but then also there are parts, you know, and he he basically told me, like, it's not for them. Like, there are jokes that are simply not for them that they are not going to get, that they don't understand and they won't appreciate. And that's fine he was saying it's really about the community. And I think, you know, the thing that you guys were touching on earlier about it being accessible, activist theater is also about like activating the actual community and making it available for the actual community um, to feel that power of togetherness and just the power that, you know, we're getting recognition. We are a part of this. We are valid, you know, because so many people try and make them feel like they are invalid, So making sure that we also have theater that is accessible for marginalized communities, making them cheaper, making them, you know, not on Broadway in places, you know, like Madeline, you you were kind of saying like, you know, theaters that don't take place on that Broadway street, you know, theaters that are everywhere in the community. I, I really think that's what activist theater is all about.
2: Yeah, one I can think of clearly at the top of my head that I previously mentioned, so Albany Park Theater Company is clearly located in Albany Park, which is, at least to my knowledge, if it's not the most, it's one of the top three Um diverse commute neighborhoods in Chicago, especially in terms of the immigrant population. And all the kids are there with little to no theatrical training prior. And they come in and they create these wonderful musicals. And going back to your point about um, one of the first thing we need to do is kind of who is creating the shows. Backtracking even more, it's who is a, who are able to create these productions. I think, especially when we get up to levels like Broadway or the big commercial theater streets, there's such a bias towards education. And that is something that is still biased in terms of the application process, but also who is like financially stable enough to go to these BFA programs, like that's rich white people. And it's only like facilitating that bias that we see in our audiences. So Albany Theater Park does a lot of scholarships. They have theater training within their school for these high schoolers. So they're at a better place to go apply to theater programs if they want to, or even go to college for something else. But then they can say like, oh, I performed at the Goodman when I was 17 years old. And you have that on your resume. But especially when you look at producers and directors, those are people that there is a level of education and higher education that's expected. And that the people that are getting those levels of higher education are white people. like the Once on This Island revival that was on Broadway in like wonderfully directed, in my opinion. But should Michael Arden have been that choice to direct that show? Like, I don't know. And when it went up to win that Tony revival, it's this, oh, this was such a wonderful like show of diversity on the Broadway stage. Then you look at the people that were up on that stage when it won that Tony award. And there were maybe four BIPOC people in that entire group. And all the audience was like on a bus going away from the theater after their performance. And that is just such a discouraging Disparity in terms of not only like seeing the people on stage, but there's only so much an actor can do in terms of how they tell a story and what they feel comfortable with. And it's making sure that like the people on stage are not the only ones that matter in terms of representation and accessibility in theater. It's everyone in the entire community. Like just because a show has oh, well, we have 15 actors and seven of them are BIPOC, so we're doing pretty well. Like, if your entire creative team is white, no, you're not. You haven't hit yeah, that benchmark. And I mean, I think that goes with the
1: We See You um, white American theater. I think that's what the movement is. I know it's We See You something. Yes. I, yeah. Is it white American theater? See, we
0: see you, yeah, We See You yeah, white American um, theater. For anybody listening, um, I
1: encourage you to check it out um, because it's basically just people working in theaters across America telling their stories of how It's just white. Like, that's just what it is. This is a a white um, community of theater. Most, like, the mainstream, the things that get attention, the things that get credit, the things that get money, is white theater. um, With the exception of a few.
0: Yeah. And one thing that's in, what I think is, even though the burden should not fall upon the writers, the writers do hold a special piece of leverage in in facilitating and um, pushing... Um, predominantly white institutions to diversify their creative team, they have that that leverage. They don't have the burden to do it, but they have that leveraged because, like, they if these places want to do your work, you have the ability to say you have to make this creative team look like how it need, how I want it to be. Look, has to look like the communities that we that this play or musical is about or is for. Like, not not your not your typical. Um, your typical audiences of rich white older uh, men and women but the communities that these plays are for and about and you can push that you actually have the power to say don't this cannot be like a predominantly white creative team like you want to do my work you have to you have to respect it in that way oh yeah that's something you can do something uh,
3: jeremy O'Harris even did with slave play on broadway is he set ticket limit price and like he like like he was like you cannot go beyond like this price and like he said a bunch of speculations on what they could and couldn't do with his show and that was like i, I follow him on tiktok and that's the only reason i know this um is because he did it, like on one of his lives he was talking about it but i thought it was like such an interesting thing because i think you're so right mitchell that like the playwright does have like all this power and i think that uh, like even beyond that that it goes like extends into like the directors and the producers even like too because it's like those are the people with the money. And those are the people like making the decisions and everything like the artistic directors of like giant companies. But I think also instead of just like, like asking like all these like predominantly white institutions and these predominantly white companies to like accept us as BIPOC people that we kind of just like need to force our way in and create our own space where like BIPOC people can create together. And like we're able just to like be able to do like anything we need to do in order to be like these creative people where like we have to start our own theater companies and we have to be doing like our own things and everything. And it's like not that like we have to exclude white people or anything. It's like obviously not. It's open to everybody. But it's about creating those spaces that are dedicated to those certain types of people because those spaces don't exist right now. And I hate the idea of like asking for them to exist rather than just
1: forcing them and making them exist ourselves. Yeah. And like, OK, I don't know how you guys feel about this, because I have. Well, first, I have a problem most of the time if people want to re- like do classics. I'm normally against it. Um, revivals, I have, I'm i normally against. But I know, like, there's this new thing where it's like, oh, we're going to do a classic, but we're going to do it with black people in it. Um, <laughs> and I feel like that's a big thing now. And sometimes it works. I mean, you get that whole... Uh, I forget the name of the theater. But when they did, like, Othello... No. Was it Othello? Mm, it was...
0: Oh yes, well, in the warehouse about, Othello, with
1: all the was... women, and it was supposed to be like a women's prison. Yes, like
0: uh, oh, you're thinking of Julia. Are you thinking of? Julie's...
2: I've seen there's Julius Caesar there's, that
0: it's was a, a, yes, yes, a yes, series, on. On them. A series of them. A bunch, yeah. Yeah,
1: like, yeah, it's a series of them. yeah. i mean like, and I get it, and I think they have merit, but it's like, I feel like for a lot of people, they're like, oh, that's the solution. <laughs> we'll do, I'll be, but we'll do it with all black people, and it's like, sure, that's great, but it's just like. I want new writers. I want to hear from new people yes. because yes. even though there's black people in it, Albee wasn't writing it for them. You know?
0: Fun fact about Albee though. Um one I forget when where it was, but I had a, a directing professor tell me this once that there was a production that wanted to do um who's afraid of Virginia Woolf with all black people, but um Edward Albee's estate specifically said that what's the name of the character? I, the, mean, I don't know. Honey and there's
3: there's Nick, George, Honey, and Martha. Nick,
0: yes, Nick could not be cast with anyone who was not white. And that was a specific Because it wouldn't thing. make
1: sense, I, uh, to be, you know?
0: Yes, okay. It so would make sense. It would not make sense.
1: Like,
3: like, I because I want to do that show and that's yeah. like a show that I'm very dedicated towards. And the way that I want to like cast it is with like, to, with George and Martha being um, white, but then being having Nick and Honey be people of color. Because I feel like the, the way that I approach the show is like about old boomer America trying to push the idea of capitalism, which is like the dead baby, onto the younger generation of color and everything. So that's the way, I would approach the show, but I don't know. I understand. I don't know. It's a very odd show and you have to be, I think, I I don't know, going back to Sarah's point to me, it's a mix, honestly, like I want to do sweet charity, but like have everybody be a drag queen. So I think there's, I think that there's like a lot of merit to doing like those old shows and like putting your own spin on it but I I think that there's even more merit to creating all these new shows with the new stories with the right intentions, because it's like, yeah, like this white playwright wrote this old ass show. And of course we can fill it with like gay people of color. But at the end of the day, it's like, it's a white person writing for white people. Like I want to see like, like gay people of color writing for gay people of color, you know, like.
1: Yeah. 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 That's why I'm so, like, that's why I'm so like conflicted about it because Like, I do see the merit in it. I just don't think it should be the majority of the theater that gets put on. You know what I mean? It's just, like, we need the right people telling these stories. You know, like, I've written shows where, like, you know, my lead would be a Filipino person. But there are roles that I personally believe need to be filled by white people because that's just the character. Like, if I write a colonizer... You know, I want that to be the character. That being said, I have seen productions where they take those white characters and they make them like, like, um, what, what was the show that I watched? Oh, my God. I, I never know what I'm trying to talk about on this podcast. Mitchell, what did I watch at ITF? Um, be
0: more chill, but I don't know if there's another one you watched.
1: <laughs> no, 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 no. And
0: Bio. That guy for white
1: no, the one that was super. Good. Oh, my God. I need to learn. I like you
0: describe the show.
2: You take, to yeah, you want
0: to like, take it? I okay,
2: I was like, I'll kind of take it over. So something that I have two points. First thing in terms of the revivals, I think for me the merit the revivals have are when you are truly flipping it on its head. So like Carousel, that redoing Carousel, be like, oh, we have a blackmail lead, and that's how we make it worth reviving is pointless. But like. I want to see Nick's version of Sweet Charity with all drag queens so badly. And there are kind of like those pieces where um, Alvin Chan, a director that I work with here at Northwestern, just did Glass Menagerie through an Asian-American lens. And so it was, you know, old work that's written by and for white people, but, you know, how... You can have direction of these shows to transform it and also show like these shows that you kind of tailor in white and American theater to be like, oh, we could never cast a person of color as that. Like, that's just your own bias showing through. And then to your point of why revivals are the predominant thing in theater. I am like certificating, I guess, in theater for audiences. So I've talked a lot about this and it's really capitalism, like sh- stories that we know are what get buttons, butts and seats. And that is just how theater is produced. So that kind of goes on everything. I read this wonderful manifesto by a uh, queer performance artist, uh, Thomas Mack. I think it's Thomas. Now <laughs> I'm doubting that. Something back. Um, and it does start with the T. And in this manifesto, he says, I believe that theater is the only reason why people want to live in New York City. If Wall Street was the only thing there, no one want to live there. Therefore, I believe that 10% of Wall Street salary should go to theater artists. And I thought that that was absolutely iconic. Uh, but there is a thing where there are so many people that are involved in the theatrical process that it gets hard. To make accessible theater and get the butts and seats that will pay these artists what they're worth without mm. like having it. It's just not accessible then, because that's when it gets up to the seventy hundred dollar ticket prices that you see on Broadway. But I mean, a good way to fix that is cutting out the spectacle. Like you do not. We did Legally Blonde at Northwestern, and that show cost fifty six thousand dollars to put on, and they could have easily done it for twenty. Like when I heard that 56, number, six thousand. Literally, I can't I breathe. I can And there's was just like no need no need for it to cost that much money. And it's also, it's just, at some point it gets to like the goods that they had, like the costuming was so not sustainable in terms of process. And I was a dresser. So I had like a very up close look at their costuming practices and it just infuriated me. And I think another thing that activist theater needs to look at is how we can make theater more sustainable. Cause that cuts down on your prices, which can cut down on the prices of tickets. Like, Theater as an industry is like so ruining to the environment because we just scrap these sets all the time and these like they are and we scrap these sets, we scrap these costumes and they can be recycled. They can be shared with other shows. You can just postpone like your tour to when the Broadway production closes and use everything the exact same and only have tailoring prices. And that's not a horrible way to look at it or just save it for when (laughs) regional theaters do it, rent it at lower cost. And that is just a way to keep the prices down for tickets because you'll still have the money to pay your artists. Yeah.
0: Is the, is the manifesto you're thinking of? Is that Taylor max? I'm yes,
2: thinking. you're right. Thank okay. you. I was like, it's not Thomas. That is like incorrect. <laughs> yes. Taylor max manifesto. It's hilarious. Read it.
1: Something that I talked about with Nick on his podcast called TFT talk. Go give it a listen if you would like to. Um, but like when we're talking about tickets and stuff, like, I come from I'm in the Filipino community and it is the most supportive, loving, tight knit community as most marginalized communities are. Like I was telling Nick, you know, like if there is a Filipino thing, my mom is dragging me out of bed and taking me to it because that's part of it. Like when you're marginalized, when you are othered, you get closer, you get more proud, you you feel just this real big feeling of kinship. And so if we start making shows that are for those communities, people will come because you're no longer marketing. You have to realize you can't market to this old, white, rich community anymore because they don't always come. Sure, they might they might pay high prices. But it's less people. If you get just more people and you make the tickets more accessible, they're going to come. Like if I put out my show and I marketed it as like this is a Filipino story, I would get like the entire Filipino community. I truly believe this to come and support me because that's just what we do. That is what I've been taught. That's what I'm going to teach my children. It's just this pride and this kinship that you really can only experience if you're in it. And it's something that is profitable you know like people would buy tickets to come see this because they've never seen it before it's something that we're lacking something that people are hungry for Um, and so it really is like you know like get scrap what you have together I think as young people too we have this energy that we need to put to use because we can be young scrappy and hungry like we can literally put shows together with no money and we don't see the need to like put on a $56,000 like, performance. We, I don't think young people would do that because we just understand we have to work with what we got right now and still put on something amazing. Um, and this show is for young people. So for young people out there, just put on your goddamn show and people are going to come to it and like tell the story that you need to because nobody else is going to do that. And it's just like run now while you can, I think is like... One of my biggest things.
0: Don't need, don't need to ask permission. Yeah.
3: And Sarah says it so beautifully on the on, on my podcast. She said, "My people will support me." And like just hearing her say that, I was like, "Holy shit!" Yes, they will. Because like like even in the Latina community, it's exact same way. Like my grandma, like like Angie Scott told us, she's like the best. Uh, what what did she say? The best marketing strategy for your show is word of mouth. So to be able to have like that community and that support behind you, like if I were to put something on and I told my grandma and I was like, hey, I want you to come see this. Like she would go to her gym and be like, look, my my grandson and like she would get everybody in there to come with her like 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 it really like it truly is like the best marketing strategy and it's like we have those communities behind us we have those people behind us and Sarah is just like so so right do it like we need to finally stop talking about it and just do it and it's like so important and I don't know I don't know like you're getting me all hyped up and I'm like yes like let's go to theater now like I
1: would have I would have I if I did the show that I just wrote I would have titas and titos galore in the seat. Yes! You know? Sure, would they be crinkling their candy while they're watching it? Yes. But in the script, an author's note that I'm adding is like, I literally want to have food on the table, like on the table that people can get anytime during the show because like there is a livelihood and a warmth, especially like these communities. Theatricality is like a part of the culture. You yes. know what I mean? Oh my goodness. We have the dance. Times. We I have... No, no, you go, you go, you go. Just like we have dance. We have... We are storytellers. That's a huge part. And we're not like the kind of people who are like, let's just sit down and talk about shit. We're like, oh, my God. Like, I'm going to tell you this story and it's going to be amazing. Like, There's a joke that all Filipino people can sing. But like, it's true. Like, we all sing like we sing karaoke. Like, some stereotypes sometimes are just true because art is a part of the community. Like, that's what it is. It's just it's Fun and it's something that we cherish and we practice and then you don't have to be good at it, you know. But it's and just
3: like people. I love that idea, like that people of color are just like natural storytellers because, like, my grandma will literally she'd be like, "Oh, el perito, el como... oh, wow, wow, wow!" And she's like, she'll like make the noises of the animals and she'd be like, "Oh, la yeah, wow, wow!" Like, like she'll like fucking like do everything and like she's so animated and it's like like you see that in like my cousins and in, like my uncles and my aunts and like my dad. Oh my goodness, my dad and like like these like just such animated. People. And it's like, I know that if I just took them and put them on stage, everybody would watch because they're just Uh that crazy.
1: (laughs) Yeah. And I'm just like, that's why I'm like, we have to stop catering to these audiences that we think are the theater audiences because they're not. If you actually look at who would want to watch stories, who would want to be present in this, there's such a bigger community that we are missing. And it is to our folly. It is. You know, when people talk about theater being dead, it's because your audience is dead. Mine is not. My community is not dead. It's thriving. And I need you to like listen to me and watch it. You know what I mean? Um, It's just like there are so many things that people talk about theater that I just completely and wholeheartedly disagree with because they're looking at it through this very, very small lens, which is white Eurocentric (laughs) capitalistic lens yeah sure your audience is dying you know you can die with it like start actually appealing to communities that are going to watch because you know they want to sorry that was a whole tangent
0: no but i i I, I literally have we have in like the the our outline here called action what can we do as writers and consumers to promote activist pieces and give them a broader platform in the theater do them watch them that's really Mm -hmm. i think that's the that's one of the biggest things is And make them accessible. Make them accessible. Make them accessible. Yes, make accessible things and then watch and go and be a consumer to accessible things. The people always say, they're like, oh, well, it's not profitable. People go to it. Hell yeah, it's profitable. Mm -hmm. So I think it's like we can use, we can, as consumers of theater, we can, if we can get them, if we can give our patronage to more accessible theater sources, That suddenly becomes something that they think, oh, this is more profitable. Let's expand this out. More theaters will do this. I think that's something that we can do as consumers and as writers. We can just put on our shows and do it accessibly. And that's that is um, and just people will come. That's what, what you were basically saying, Sarah. It's like, do it. Don't ask forgiveness. Do your show.
1: Well, like one thing that we're talking about in one of our classes, we're reading An Empty Space by Peter Brook. And we just read. It's Um, so good. (laughs) This section called um, Deadly Deadly Theater. Theater. And it's basically like we like people aren't going to the theater because it's freaking boring. Like people are doing theater wrong. You know, like I don't care, honestly, about seeing Tennessee Williams that much. I honestly couldn't care less to see an Arthur Miller piece. Like, I get it. I get it as part of the history. True West. Uh, don't get me started on the true West that I did not enjoy at all because I don't care about (laughs) I don't care about watching male aggression on stage I just don't I don't care for it at all. I also grew up with this. It's a beautiful scene study.
3: You could, There's so much going on. These two men, Like, it's like there's papers written on this. It's like, well, I'm not going to read.
1: That. I don't care about so. people who are just like, I want to fucking kill you. I'm going to kill you. You know, it's just like, there's so much theater that we're doing wrong, I think. And like, we're doing, we're giving it such a disservice because there are writers and producers and directors Give them somewhere to perform. Give them somewhere to do something. And they're going to do something amazing. So just let them do it. And it's really But
3: honestly, that, I, that idea of, like, where theater can be done, like, once you finally realize that the answer is anywhere is, like, so amazing. And it's, like, like something that Izzy Roth talks about on our podcast is, like, um, prisons doing theater and like using theater as like a form of rehabilitation or just like um, like bringing like theater into prisons and like stuff. And it's just like, it's just such like, an interesting concept. And I just think it's like something like worth being explored, but that idea that theater can be like done anywhere, I feel like can make it so much more accessible in that way, you know, where it's like, if we do like open air theaters or we do theater or we do it like in some rundown warehouse, or you just do theater, wherever you want to do theater, you can bring the people there.
2: Yeah. And we also need to change like that's a <laughs> Sarah called theater, a white haven earlier, which I love. And I will be taking that term from you. And we just need to stop making theater this like terrifying place to exist in. Like there's no need for theater to be silent. You should be able to respond to what you're seeing on stage. You shouldn't mm-hmm. feel shame for like crinkling your rap trappers when you're eating something because shows can go for like three hours you will get hungry and thirsty and it should be something the whole point of theater is to bring in communities and it it is not for people to go in and sit in a dark room and sit in silence and in fear of being too noisy for some sake of like ruining this so-called ambiance that has been created by soup like super pretentious white men that have long past died. Yeah, and it's like it's like,
1: even like Shakespeare theater was a very active audience, you know? So it's like, why are we saying that we need to watch Shakespeare and like be very quiet and be very like scholarly when like Shakespeare's literally like, his jokes are so dirty. Like, can we just acknowledge that for a second? Like, if I was in the audience and I hear him say things, I'm just gonna be like oh my god god you know like everybody be like you know once again i'm bringing back to my ethnicity but like my filipino family is so goddamn loud we will say everything that we're thinking like i want an audience full of lolas that are just like the whole time like i oh oh my oh my god oh my god (laughs) you know Like
3: with deadly theater, we talk about the deadly audience and that's exactly what you're talking about is that theater that the the audience, sorry, that like can't respond, the audience that like can't feel anything because we like tell them that they have to act a certain way. But then like when we bring in Sarah's concept of just being like letting the audience be human beings, like, like you're able just to like let them like be alive and like you don't have like that deadly audience yeah like i feel like that's such an amazing thing
1: i will say one of my favorite audiences that i have ever been a part of um was uh mitchell might be able to talk on this too i have i went to the international theater festival um in which uh, international thespian festival sorry um for theater kids for high school theater kids and it was one of the most fun experiences that i have ever had because it's all these young people who You know, villains go on stage and they boo them like it's fun, you know, like people gasp and people clap and are just like like the whole time. They're just like, I love you. You know, like these they'll just say things in the theater and it's a type of energy that's just amazing to be a part of. And so I want I want that, you know, like I want that in theater. And I think everybody else does, too, because who wants to be bored? That's not why you go to theater.
0: I saw a production of, um, I think it was a production of Bright Star uh, at at International Thespian Festival, and there was this one thing that this production did, where they had a train on, like it was like part of their set on like the proscenium, and it would just go across the stage to like signal a transition, I think, of time. And every time that train moved, there was a thunderous applause mm-hmm. and like people were cheering that like <laughs> remote control train. That's just that's what like that's what I want to see in audiences is just like the ability to just like cheer on this inanimate object, something that's like that, as simple as that can be evocative and like people can feel free to just like have a great time and like bring themselves and their what they find enjoyable and funny to the theater.
1: Like, can we bring meme culture to the theater? Like that kind of energy (laughs) and that kind of vibe. You know what I mean? Of just like, you want your
3: audience just to breathe out of their nose anytime they think something is funny. There's like,
1: (laughs) there is something about a high school classroom when we have a substitute teacher. That's the exact kind of audience that I want in my theater. Of just like, they're ready. They're ready to fuck shit up. Like they're ready to really bring it. You know, I want that. You know, and. I feel like everybody does. And if you don't like, that's fine. I'm sure there'll be a subsection of theater, but I want it to be lively. And I think that that's great. You know, I don't really think we're talking about activist theater anymore, but it's just like, these are things that, these are problems that I have. This is,
3: Um, something that an old, old theater director told me was that he always like leaves the lights on whenever he does comedies, because he's like, why would I let them sit in the dark and like sit in like this, like, like this nothingness, like they want to be able to see each other. They want to laugh with each other. They want to experience this with each other. And I was like, what? Because I I've never seen a comedy with the lights on, but like, what an interesting concept that something as simple as that can really just like change the entire ambiance or whatever bullshit we want to call it.
0: And this all does 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 rely on when theater comes back, because like honestly, yeah. right now no one wants to unmute their Zoom windows and laugh or mm. make noises. But
3: why not? I mean, like I why not
0: why not? So I annoying. get I feels class, uncomfortable. I know but I'm the
3: only person talking, and it's like everyone is on Zoom, and it's just me and Angie Scott going back and forth. And I'm like, okay,
1: okay.
0: Yeah, but I do think the awkward. Yeah, I, I agree with you. Yeah,
1: you know what I mean. That awkward thumbs up. How's everybody reactions? doing today? I hate it, but at one point that's going to be over very soon. But, uh, okay. do you guys have anything else that you would like to
2: plug,
0: Madeline? If you want to plug Spectrum Theater Company,
2: yeah, I will constantly plug Spectrum Theater Company. But also, a wonderful thing about accessible theater is just how much theater is online right now mm-hmm. for you to watch mostly for free. So, just get out and watch theater. Yeah,
3: um, if I could plug something, uh, TFT Talk comes out every Wednesdays and Saturdays at noon, me thinks, but me does not know. Um, also just to think about accessible theater. Uh, you just make sure that you do theater for everybody and make sure that when you're approaching your theater and you're like approaching your casting decisions to always consider what you're saying with the people that you're doing theater with and where, and like where they are on stage and backstage.
1: Hmm.
0: That's, absolutely. Yeah. So yeah. Um, if you have a piece that you want... One of our things here at Play Repertory Podcast is to give um, a platform people who would not normally be able to like put on their piece. Like Our, our motto is just do it. Do the piece. Read it. And I think... Um, and so that's one of the things. So if you have a piece that you've been wanting to get read or workshopped, um, you can submit it to us here at the Play Repertory Podcast. Our, the link to it is... Sarah, do you want to try it or do you want me to just do it?
1: I can try I forget it every single week. Okay. Um... The link is PRP slash submit, submit slash
0: tinyurl.com slash PRP submit. I
1: was close enough. Every time. I was close enough. You were close.
0: You were close. You were close. Yeah. Tinyurl.com slash PRP submit. You can submit your play there and we can have it read here on the Play It Repertory podcast. Give you feedback as well as have fun times with different games, including manning to computer. And I guess... It won't be the squeak this time, but, you know, it will still be your Computer, and that's always fun. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, of course, this is episode... I don't know why I checked my watch. It's episode 22, but... Um, I don't know about you. So I don't know about you. But uh, so this episode I'm is feeling,
1: feeling 22. That's how I'm feeling.
0: 22. <laughs> so there are 21 episodes prior to this one. You can go listen to hours and hours of just um, topics of theater, as well as great fun plays. And you can go listen to those on... Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher. 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 We really, we keep, yeah, it's our goal. End of this season, end of this year, we will, we, I will have Stitcher in our DMs. Sure. But yeah, <laughs> but yeah, you can go go to listen list go tell your friends, your family, just tell them, anyone who's interested in playwriting or writing and storytelling in general, just let them know like that this is a place where we want to be able to bring topics about theater um, to whoever is interested in writing.
1: Mitchell, any final thoughts?
0: Let's bring meme culture to the theater.
1: Fantastic. Thanks for watching. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. See you next week. Ha ha. I said it.